Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Ishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Judea to the world. You're a part of it wherever you are. Shalom to all of you, and happy day after Yom Ha'atzmut, Israel Independence Day. Still feeling the energy here in Israel. It was such a, such a high uh, yesterday here in the land of Israel. Uh, even though we were all in our homes and kind of locked away from the, the regular celebrations for me, um, and I think for a lot of other people, it was a time to look inward, to, to, to really think about why we're celebrating today, uh, to be less concerned with food and family and all these things. And just although we had plenty of food and we enjoyed our, our nuclear family very much, uh, we also really did a lot of thinking about the story of Israel, what it means. And I can tell you, I feel energized and empowered. We're going through a cycle right now where we started at Pesach, we started at the, uh, uh, at the Exodus, went out of the Exodus and into, uh, we left Egypt and into the Red Sea, splitting the Red Sea and seeing that incredible miracle coming out on the other side, seeing our enemies destroyed. Then we remembered, speaking of our enemies, we remembered Yom HaShoah, Israel Holocaust Memorial Day. We went from Yom HaShoah, which is the, the apex of the uh, challenges, the, the hardships, and the, the horrors that we faced in the diaspora. Uh, we went from that to Yom HaZikaron, which is the, the um, recognition of the incredible amount of self-sacrifice that people went through in order to give us this day, which comes right afterwards, which is Yom HaTzmut. Yom HaZikaron, very powerful day. I spent the day listening to stories. I even heard stories on Israeli radio about all the way back to uh, Joseph Trumpeldor and how he lost his life fighting for Tel Chai um, in the north of Israel way before the state was, was really created. But they knew that the state was coming, and they knew that their self-sacrifice was meaningful. Joseph Trumpeldor uh, said, and it's pretty much corroborated by at least three or four witnesses that were there when he was shot and he was dying, he said, davar, no big deal. Tov lamud ba'ad ha'aretz. It's good to die for the land. Today, today they kind of say it, Tov lamud ba'ad ha'aretz. It's good to, to die for our land. But what he originally said was, Tov lamud ba'ad ha'aretz. It's good to die for the land. But he meant that in the sense that it's good to die for the land so that others could live. Bahem, we're living in it. And, and boy, are we living in it. Uh, so it's really something amazing. You could probably hear in my voice just a lot of energy. Yom HaZikaron to Yom HaTzma'ut. My family, we put up a big flag. Uh, and then in the town, they drove through these uh, uh, these kind of little parades of, of Israeli security vehicles and, 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 and first responders. It's still got a way to go for how America does parades, right? When I lived in New Jersey... The parade that they had in my town was just something else. Uh, but still, it was very, very meaningful and beautiful. And, and, and that idea that everybody was getting cheered up on their, on their balconies was, was, I thought, was quite moving. And the meat was great. And Malka made everything awesome and delicious. And we also uh, even did a, um, uh, a wonderful uh, questionnaire. like It was an escape room based on questions about Israel and Zionism. And we had the best fun with all that. Um, a few days before Yom Ha'atzmaut, Israel Independence Day, I got a chance, I was invited to MC um, an interview between uh, three amazing people. One of them is author and, uh, and columnist Caroline Glick. Another one is the founder of the David Horowitz Freedom Center, David Horowitz, uh, 
and the many uh, efforts that he has in order to uh, uh, monitor what the jihad is doing in the United States and basically fighting for liberty and against the ideas of the, uh, of the universalist, globalist left, uh, which is um, uh, trying very hard to, I think, undermine some of the American ideals. That's what he's fighting for. And Katie Hopkins, British journalist and kind of uh, famous loudmouth, but I find her to be one of the smartest people around. Not everybody likes, she has said some, some controversial things. Not everybody likes it, but I think that she's fabulous and I think she understands Israel well. And these three intellectuals, public intellectuals, came together to talk about Israel. Came to talk about Israel and also the global situation. So for the next uh, bit, for the next hour plus, you're going to, uh, if you like, if you would like to join me, you'll hear an interview with these really top, top intellectuals. And I, I, I want to promise you that if you, if you listen through the whole thing, you're going to be turned on. It, 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 I know because, you know, my job is to try to turn on other people, but sometimes I get turned on, and I know that that's a powerful dose of turning on. So I want to really recommend that you listen through all the way, uh, and I don't usually say that. I want you to, to, to really try to listen through all the way on, on these top, top thinkers, intellectuals, public, public uh, personalities, uh, th- walking through and thinking about what's happening in Israel, in the world today, and what that really means about Israeli independence or what Israeli independence means for the world. So with that, I, um, I stop. And I let you uh, tune into that that very special broadcast, which, by the way, does exist on YouTube, and I'll be putting that up on my uh, website, ishaifleischer.com, as well. All right, folks, here we go with uh, a conversation with three public intellectuals, Caroline Glick, uh, uh, David Horowitz, and Katie Hopkins, about Israel and the future of this world. Shalom, everybody. Ishai Fleischer here on a very special broadcast uh, for 72 years, honoring and marking 72 years of Israeli independence. Israel Independence Day is coming, and that's right after Passover, right after Israel Holocaust Memorial Day, and it brings up issues of freedom, uh, of liberty, of nationalism, of heritage, of biblical heritage, and really the question of what, what, what is this all about? What is this project all about? Is it an important project? Is it one that's really changing the world? Is it just protecting Jews? Is nationalism something that's important to all of us? Is liberty uh, really in the cards? Or are we being shut down from liberty? Uh, of course, I'm also talking uh, in light of the coronavirus situation and, and all that's happened in the last few months. Altogether, there's a lot of questions out there. Well, I have a great way to answer those questions, and that's some of the cultural icons of today. Superstars uh, that really, uh, not only are they smart, but they really shape the way so many of us think. They get it out. Uh, they're artists that ship. Uh, they really get it out to the world. And we have with us... Uh, three amazing people, Katie Hopkins, uh, Caroline Glick, and David Horowitz. Let me talk a little bit about some of these people who are really all heroes of mine. Caroline Glick is a senior columnist at Israel Hayom, Israel's leading newspaper, and senior fellow at the Middle Eastern Affairs, of Middle Eastern Affairs at the Center for Security Policy. She's the author of The Israeli Solution, A One-State Plan for Peace in the Middle East. That's one state, not two states. And she's the author of other books as well. All have been vetted. Uh, and endorsed by people like President, Vice President Mike Pence, etc. Uh, she has been uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's foreign policy advisor, assistant foreign policy advisor, and in her previous, and we'll see also like David, in her previous kind of life, she was also a member, a core member of Israel's negotiating team with the Palestinians. Uh, 
her, her writing appears everywhere, including Wall Street Journal, New York Times, National Review, and others' commentary. But really, anybody who's an Israeli nationalist or a pro-Israel nationalist knows Caroline Glick's writing. And I'm talking about in Hebrew and in English. So that's incredible to have her with us today. Katie Hopkins, another amazing lady, uh, is a British conservative. First thing is that she uh, came to visit me in Hebron and, and you know, started fighting with everybody who was a bad guy. So uh, Katie Hopkins is a British conservative media personality, a newspaper columnist, radio show host, known for her unflinching uh, reporting in hostile environments. She's actually, uh, she, she may not look it, but she's a trained economist, a graduate of the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, and she served in the Army for 35 years before leaving to run a management consultancy. That's all good. But then she was selected as a candidate on the British Apprentice Show, became quite famous, and, uh, and from then her career took off. Today she's the most read columnist at Daily Mail, most listened to uh, Sunday commercial radio show host in England, appeared on BBC, Fox, Carlson, Hannity, etc. Uh, and she is uh, one of President Trump's most ardent supporters. She's one of the few people that he does follow, and she has a million followers on Twitter, and a best-selling book called Rude. And when, when you hear her talk, you'll know why. And then uh, we have with us, of course, uh, David Horowitz, who is uh, one of the leading lights in our generation, a conservative thinker and writer, uh, who didn't start off that way. Uh, by the way, I read about him that the question mark is, when does he eat or sleep? Because he's really authored dozens of books. He began as a left person, in fact, one of the founders of the New Left, and in the 60s uh, was the editor of the left's largest magazine, Ramparts. But he explains in his uh, best-selling autobiography, Radical Son, how he transitioned away from that, ultimately finding a political home, an intellectual home, and as a conservative activist. He started the David Horowitz Freedom Center, which, whose mission it is to defend free societies in places like the United States and Israel, amongst others. He has fought many political battles, exposing deadly intentions of jihadism, challenging left-wing indoctrination in K-12 through public schools and then universities, and advocating to withdraw funding for terror-affiliated organizations like Students for Justice in Palestine. He's the author of many books, including The Black Book of the American Left, a nine-volume collection of his conservative writings over the past many decades and also three books already on the Trump era. That is an amazing achievement, and you guys are all amazing. And we have also, together with the three amazing stars that we have, we also have an amazing holiday that we're celebrating. That's 72 years uh, of Israeli independence, and along with that, also 100 years since the San Remo Accords in 1920, where the Allied powers that were victorious in World War I uh, came to take apart the Ottoman Empire and decide who's going to get pieces of it. They did that in April 25th, uh, uh, 1920 in San Remo, Italy. And of course, that was also the birth uh, of the Jewish state in the land of Israel. So before we go on, I, I want to ask all three of you, I'll start with Carolyn. Carolyn, if you could give us just a few words on, on, on Israel independence, what it means to you, and, and how do you celebrate it? Um, well, since we're in coronavirus time, I think we're going to be celebrating with the barbecue in our backyard. But um, it, the rebirth of the uh, state of Israel after 2,000 years of exile, the Jewish people, was a singular moment in Jewish history, and I dare say in, in human history. Um, I grew up in Chicago, uh, third-generation American from a family that had uh, immigrated to the United States from Eastern Europe, run away from the pogroms, and so was saved 
uh, from the Holocaust. And um, it just seemed to me as we were learning about Zionism and about Jewish history uh, as a schoolgirl that uh, while I love the United States and uh, I couldn't be more grateful for all the wonderful things that the United States gave to the Jewish people in terms of having the first time uh, having full civil rights and freedom and equal citizenship in a country uh, of, of, of our dispersion, that uh, in 1948, a miracle occurred. And we brought about the miracle uh, to a large degree, the Jewish people did. We reconstituted our homeland against all odds, against uh, superhuman odds, in fact. And it seemed to me like it would be extraordinary not to, it would be an extraordinary mistake not to take advantage of that. And to and to be part of this uh, experience, experience of the Jewish people. I mean, it has never happened before in human history uh, that a people was dispersed, maintained itself in exile for fifty generations, maintained its faith, maintained its attachment to its homeland, maintained its its attachment to one another as a people, and uh, and 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 through everything through persecution, through expulsions, through pogroms, through the Holocaust, through uh, generational attempts by the enemies of the Jews to simply wipe us off the map, as Ahmadinejad said in 2006 regarding Iran and its nuclear weapons program. And we survived and we maintained who we were across time and space. And after 50 generations, we came back and we rebuilt our country. How would anybody want to stay away from that? I mean, I, I can't imagine a more inspirational event. And so um, from the age of 12, I wanted to make my life here. And I did when I was 21, after I graduated from Columbia. And uh, you mentioned my early days as a negotiator with the PLO. Well, that was during my military service. I served in the IDF as a, as a captain for five and a half years. Um, and it was during the course of my military service where I was called uh, to be a member of the uh, Israeli delegation to talk to the PLO. And um, so, you know, I, I think I'm extremely privileged. I know my children are, are probably the most privileged Jew Jewish children to have been born because they're living uh, in a Jewish society as free boys, uh, surrounded by people who love them um, in a country that's flourishing and prosperous, where they're free to be Jews in any way they in any way they choose, or at least in any way, I'll let them. And um, you know, I mean, I can't think of a more, mirac more more miraculous thing, and I can't think of a greater privilege than to be a Jew living in the state of Israel uh, today. So, what Independence Day means to me uh, is uh, we're doing it. Uh, we survived. We came back. Uh, we built our land and we're continuing to build it. We're fighting for it. We're paying for it. Uh, but we're doing it and it's it's a miracle and, and I feel very blessed. Uh, thank you, Carolyn. And uh, thank you for, for giving us continued strength to, to, to fight and knowing what to fight because sometimes the enemies are hidden and we'll get to that a little bit. Katie, you're the only a member of our panel today that's not exactly a member of the tribe, uh, but you are as close as they come. Uh, and uh, when you came to Hebron uh, to visit the, the tomb of the fathers and mothers, the biblical fathers and mothers, you also immediately understood all the challenges that Israel faces, all the, the left accusations that we're somehow stealing somebody else's land, that this heritage is actually not ours, that we've co-opted somebody else's heritage. And you, you, you understood it immediately and started to fight with it. Tell me what, why a not, a not exactly member of the tribe 
you know, understands Israel, feels for Israel. And how do you feel on Israel's 72nd anniversary? Yeah, and uh, I think that's exactly it. Last time I saw you, we were standing on the steps uh, in Hebron of the Tomb of the Patriarchs, the Matriarchs. And I remember you and I talking about how your brilliant land was growing. And you talked about how many million Jews there are now. And then the gentleman behind who was happened to be there to visit started shouting out 20 million, 50 million, 100 million Jews. And, and that to me is exactly the way I feel. I'm not Jewish. Um, I wish I was. And it's that feeling, it's an emotion I have that you can, you can feel how you all connect with that place. And it is home. And each time I speak to uh, my Jewish friends, to you, uh, to people in Israel, it's that absolute innate connection with a place that you call home. It's so powerful. And I think to Caroline's point there, um, I'm a mother too. And what's so, um, what I admire about what Caroline says and what you're all doing is you're building a place and you're building a land, a home where you are proud and reassured that your children can grow up safe and be whatever they want to be, as far as Caroline lets them, or I would as my children, um, whatever they want to be in that land. And the one thing I wanted to say is, is that's what I now aspire to and I'm looking for, because as I lose my country and my country is taken over uh, by a different faith, I am looking for a place for my children to call home. And, uh, and it's always so uplifting to me. I've spent a lot of time with French Jews, uh, German Jews, other Jews leaving Europe because it is no longer safe for their children and making that same journey that Caroline has made. And to me, that's what Independence Day, really, that's how I feel it as a mother, is that you have created a safe home for your children to grow up in. And, and that's something fundamental to all of us as mothers or fathers, wherever we are. Thank you very much for those statements. And, and you're totally right about children, especially now during the Corona time. We're like with our children all the time. One of the blessings has been is to actually spend more time with them instead of the, the rat race that we're usually in. Uh, and we just did have Israel Holocaust Memorial Day. And to, to watch, and I let my 12-year-old daughter for the first time watch some of the footage that they showed on Israeli television about Holocaust Memorial Day, and she was shocked, and she really began crying, and she even asked me, how did you let me watch this? And I said to her, because it's the truth. You know, I can shield you from the truth for a long time, but at some point, you've got to see what we faced, and when you see what we faced, you also understand what we've gained uh, in the gift uh, of the State of Israel, and really, Israel Independence Day is, the, is, is, is that realization of what could have been had we had Israel during the Holocaust, and, uh, and we are very grateful for it to, to raise our children in this opportunity in this life. Thank you very much for being with us, Katie. Uh, and of course, David, uh, you are a member of the tribe, a famous one indeed, uh, and you, yet you were part of a different tribe, um, a tribe that eschewed religion, like the famous John Lennon song, no religion, no borders, no nationalities. You were part of that founding radical left, which maybe even had certain beautiful ideas, but you understood that they were actually corrupt and they were, they were power hungry. Uh, we're still struggling here with our beloved state of Israel to make it that state of liberty, to make it that, uh, that place of, first thing, sovereignty in our own homeland uh, and, and to uh, throw out the jihad that is within us and around us. 
Uh, but tell me how you see the state of Israel uh, from all of your writings and all of your things and thinkings all of this year, all these years, to see it now flourishing with nine million citizens. How does 72 years make you feel? Great. Um, <clears throat> I see um, Israel, Israeli independence uh, as uh, framed by a 3,000 year war against the Jews. I think everything has to be seen in that light, that the Jews are the most persecuted people in the history of the world, and they've survived uh, those persecutions, but barely. Um, if it weren't for the state of Israel, um, there would be either no Jews in the Middle East left, uh, or the Jews would be in a, in a terrible, sub, um, oppressed condition. The Godfather of uh, Palestinian nationalism was a Nazi, Ajamin al Husseini. The Muslim Brotherhood, which uh, originated the call to push the Jews into the sea and destroy the state of Israel, translated my Kampf into Arabic in the 30s. Um, Ajamin al Husseini actually went to Berlin for the whole Second World War. To raised an Arab battalion for Hitler, and designed his own Auschwitz for the Middle East, which was only thwarted um, because uh, Montgomery beat Rommel at El Alamein. Otherwise, there would have been uh, the concentration camps and the gas chambers in the Middle East, too. Uh, no nation state, no freedom. In the, in the era of nation states, I mean, the, the Nazis certainly showed that. But um, they were adherents of another religion. I think it was August Bemel who said that socialism is the anti-Semitism of fools. Um, because socialists, people on the left are deluded into thinking there's a, over the rainbow, there's a world uh, where there's social justice and everybody is happy and gets along. And these are people who, uh, have by nature, they despise um, uh, the books of Genesis. I mean, the, the first murder is between brothers. Uh, uh, war is the natural state of mankind. Anybody can see that. Uh, and we see even today um, with the European Union about to collapse, uh, that nationality, people, uh, their, their customs, their traditions, uh, and, and the basis of any freedoms that they have are built within a nation state. You want to understand the, the, uh, you know, why Britain is a uh, free country, you have to go back to the Middle Ages uh, and the Magna Carta. Uh, and all these um, traditions, all the laws, all the sense of what's right and what's wrong uh, are built into a culture and the culture is established within the confines of a nation state. So it, it's a miracle. It was a miracle that the Jews won the 1948 war. Um, they're surrounded. Uh, Israelis are, of course, the Jews of Israel are surrounded by nations who want to finish, say so, want to finish the job that Hitler started um, and have really no other rationale for, for being. 
you know, there are, there are peace movements in Israel. There, the, the peace movement in the Gaza Strip is maybe 10 people, maybe it's a few more. But, uh, you know, roughly 100% of Palestinians vote for terrorists who proclaim in their charters that they want to exterminate the Jews. So I'm, I'm puzzled by Jewish stupidity in opposing the nation state uh, and pretending that the Palestinians are something other than they are. I mean, there are good Palestinians, but there were also probably a lot more good Germans. And in the end, they didn't make a damn's worth of difference. Powerful words. And indeed, Israel does struggle trying to find those good people uh, within, within that society that's really all around us and, and within us. Uh, and, and those voices do come out, but of course they are suppressed uh, by the jihad here in the country. We have jihad even in Jerusalem. And, and not only are they bad to Jews, to Israel, but they're also bad to decent Arabs who, who want a decent life, want to raise their head up, but, but they can't. I'm going to shift the conversation a little bit to uh, issues that, that connect all three of our countries, uh, Britain, uh, the United States, and Israel. And I'm, I'll start off with a little story. You know, I'm a Zionist. I, I live in Israel, and, uh, and it's been my dream to live in Israel all my life. But I'm also a New York Jew in the sense that I grew up uh, in large measure in New York, in that Babylon, uh, big Jewish beehive, uh, successful and, and, and beautiful. And you know what? I started taking uh, the United States for granted because that's the other place that I live. It's Jerusalem uh, and it's New York, and I fly between them, and I started taking it for granted. I took a tour of Australia, and I started watching how Australians relate to the United States. And I realized the United States is not just my backyard. It's actually the super powerful country that has hard power, but also soft power, cultural power, that touches the whole world. And everybody looks to the United States, this big economy, this big cultural uh, uh, power. They look to this country to give it direction. But if we look to, to the United States today, we see an unbelievable unbelievable divisiveness. There's a divide that has never been seen before. Such, a, such an atmosphere of, of contention. I, I saw it in my own family. Uh, they can't even talk to one another. Within a minute, the F-bomb is flying and, and people are standing up and they can't talk to one another. And so that's the atmosphere in the United States. That atmosphere is also in England. Uh, we saw with the Brexit back and forth and back and forth and such a sense of divide in England and here in Israel as well. Are we a peace camp? Are we an annexation camp? Uh, do, do we want to hold on to our land? Do we want to give it away? There's a sense of ambivalence and, and a divide. And that is really, that's marking these great democracies today. So I want to ask you, like, what is the cultural thing that's happening right now between all these countries? Is it all different or is there something happening? Are we pawns of the media, or is this divide actual intellectual uh, freedom and liberty, you know, expressing itself in the difference of opinion, or is it really a conflict that's not good for humanity? And I'll start with you, Katie, because you yourself are often accused of fomenting uh, such uh, such uh, uh, kind of tension between uh, parties and understandings. Tell me how you see it. What what is this divide all about? Yes, and uh, for any of your uh, viewers or listeners that don't know me, um, I am known as a divisive figure. Uh, people say, you know, you either love her or you hate her. Um, I'm often seen as something of a villain, even on Israeli TV. Um, and that's all about my personal belief. And it's actually a value we share that you have, this uh, need for moral clarity. 
And I think moral clarity for me is about being willing to make tough decisions and know that there is a risk to those decisions or being able to make, to speak my truths, but knowing that the downside of that is not everybody will like me. And I have accepted and embraced that for a long time now. Um, but how I see things and the reason this is behind me, this is in my home where I live. I live in a great place called the rest of the UK. I should explain that the UK is made up of two places. One place called London, where people live that I have nothing in common with, have no wish to know, and is run by a small Muslim mayor that I have no time for. I live in a place called the rest of the UK, which is much more like our kind of Israel. It's a glorious place to be. And the reason I have this behind me in my home, it's an absolutely massive flag. Uh, and I have my Israeli flag over there too, um, is that these are the, the things that I, this is the place I come to when I need reassurance. And my belief, and it's a firm belief, is that across the globe, we are in this battle between darkness and light. And for me, America stands and shines the light very brightly. 64 million Americans who voted for Donald J. Trump illuminated the sky and stood up for strong national identity. And that's also what brilliant Brexiteers did. I'm a massive Brexiteer. And it was standing up for borders, for being proud of our country, for being having a sovereign nation that we could defend, protect, and be proud of. And of course, when you come to Israel, and I spent time with Ori when I was in Israel last, and on the back of his amazing bike, as we whizzed around the streets uh, together, and that's the, that's the defining thing of the Israeli nation. If, if you ask me what it is, it's that sense of being so proud of the nation that you're part of. So as much as there's this huge divisiveness that you speak to absolutely accurately, and as much as many families now don't speak to each other at all in America, in the UK, and as much as I know people who've changed their surnames so that they're no longer part of a family they don't recognize, what I actually see is this huge fight and push for unity across all nations, people who are proud and strong nationalists, who are proud of their own identity. We are joining up. I see us like spiders on a web, and we are joined on this strong web fighting for the things that we hold dear, which is the values of our country. And I think it's so important that we have people like Caroline, like David, like yourself, others that we know calling out the difficult things that need to be said, because that is the moral clarity that we need right now. Um, and I think that, to me, is where I stand. We look to America, we look to Israel, we stand together, standing up for our nations. And if I think coronavirus has taught us anything, it's taught us that actually borders do matter. And one of the first things that people called for when this virus started happening was to have borders reestablished and reinstated and for me, actually, that was quite a reassuring uh, side effect of Corona is that people once more wanted their borders back. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kathy. I want to turn out to David. David, uh, is, there, is there a future for the United States to continue to be a leader? Or is this conflict going to, are we going to, like, sometimes when I watch the United States from Israel, I think to myself, they're eating each other apart. And when I get to America, I'm like, yeah, they're eating each other apart. Is the United States still going to be uh, uh, a leader in morality, in, in a vision of, of freedom, of strength, or is it going to 
dissolve kind of into smaller entities or have less of a strength in the future? Uh, is it going to kind of go into decadence or in a sense of kind of the, what I call the I generation, uh, where everything is really about me and I? Is, is there still a light that's going to come out of, of the United States or is this divisiveness going to finish off that great project? Depends on which side wins. <laughs> um, we're in the midst of a civil war. The Democratic Party is now a racist party. It's a communist party. And I, I say that as having grown up in the communist world. Um, that's who they are. They hate America. Uh, America is based on individualism. They're collectivists. Uh, identity politics, which is the creed of the Democratic Party these days, um, judges you by the group that you're part of. Um, if you're white and male um, and uh, a Christian or an, actually a religious Jew, um, then you're damned. You're guilty before the facts. And if you're a, a female of color and preferably uh, uh, not heterosexual, uh, then you're innocent, even if the facts show that you're guilty. I mean, we have the spectacle now of the uh, um, senile, uh, probably has Alzheimer's. Biden is going to select the next, you know, if he were elected, is going to select his vice president on the basis it's got to be a woman of color. I mean, how racist is that? And this has terrible implications for Israel. You have the Democratic Party practically uh, to a, a man and woman supporting giving Iran nuclear weapons and $200 billion to be used for terrorist purposes while there are 150,000 uh, Iranian missiles aimed at Israel. Uh, from Lebanon and, uh, and the Gaza Strip, um, if the Democrats prevail, Israel is going to have to fight the war on its own. And it's not going to be, uh, I say we're in the midst of a civil war. The reason that there's not uh, a lot of bloodshed in the streets um, is because the federal government is too powerful. We can't have a civil war the way we did in the 19th century. But the war is for control of that federal government. And, and I mean, the, the mere fact that Bernie Sanders could be a leading contender for the Democratic nomination, this self-hating Jew, lifelong communist, uh, uh, or that Ilhan Omar, uh, you know, who does fundraisers for Hamas, should be sit on the Foreign Affairs Committee and have top secret clearance. So, I mean, we are in a very, very dangerous situation. And if it weren't, if we didn't have a, a fighter like Trump, I noticed, I mean, while we're commemorating things today, Trump issued an order to the United States military uh, to sink any Iranian boat that's harassing him. That's quite a, a distance from the Obama Kerry, whose family is married into the Iranian regime, these people who chant death to Israel and death to America. Uh, and what, what's mystifying to me is that there are so many Jews who have joined our enemies. Uh, and I say that both as an American and as a Jew. But if I can, if I could just follow up with that, a little question for you. You mentioned President Obama and then you mentioned President Trump. Like, is the United States schizophrenic? 
I mean, these are two polar opposites. Well, look, They're not. The left, communism, socialism, whatever you want to call it, is a crypto religion. It's about redemption in this, in this world. Uh, that that uh, they consider themselves social redeemers. They're saving the planet. Um, they're saving the world. They're going to institute this kingdom of heaven on earth. Uh, these are people who have repudiated the lessons of, of Genesis. Um, in Genesis, Genesis, of course, is the story of origins where we had a paradise that was better than the Green New Deal. I mean, you didn't die. The, Fruit fell from the trees, but there was one thing that was forbidden, and that was to do evil. That's what eating uh, of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil means. And, uh, you know, Adam and Eve wanted to do evil. Why? Well, the serpent seduced them by saying, if you eat, if you are able to commit evil, you shall be as gods. And that's the delusion that every leftist has. They think they can remake the world, and there's no crime that they won't support or commit to do it. And these can be, you know, very nice people in ordinary life. But when they get into politics, they will sanction it. Just like this campaign against Trump, I mean, it's now for, in the midst of a virus which threatens everybody, whether you're Republican or Democrat, the Democrat congressional leadership is conducting a war against the commander in chief. We have a democracy. He was elected. You don't like him, you, you know, win, in, win the next election. But they, are, they just want to sabotage the defense of the country against the virus. That tells you what traitors they are. And I know these are harsh words, but uh, it was Confucius who said, or maybe it was, um, well, let's say it was Confucius. <laughs> In order to, to create justice, the first thing you have to do is rectify the names, call things by their right names. And if I can be slightly critical on this day that we're celebrating these Israeli milestones, I think the uh, Israeli government and, uh, has done a terrible job in fighting the propaganda war. You have to start with, you can't negotiate with the Palestinians. They're terrorists. Let them renounce terror, let them disarm, let them take those rockets down. Um, and then you can negotiate with them. I mean, nothing showed the, the, the delusion of giving Gaza back to these monsters, uh, you know, should have convinced every Israeli and every Jew that, that that's a dead end, that that's suicide. These people, Took the first, it was the first day when the Israelis left the Gaza Strip. They started firing rockets into schoolyards in Starot. These are horrible, horrible people. I definitely agree with you, David, that uh, negotiating with Hamas is an impossible thing. But I wouldn't negotiate with the PLO if they were the nicest guys on the earth because this is our well, land. You know, Hamas is as bad as any Hamas. I mean, it's a horror. They're okay, liars, monstrous liars. <laughs> You know, and I had this experience where I, I put up, uh, I took out ads uh, with the 10 genocidal lies uh, of the Palestinian cause, beginning with the, the lie that Israel occupies one inch of Arab land. The land belonged to the Turks, who are not Arabs, let alone Palestinians. 
uh, and they lost it in a war. Uh, you know, let's remember, uh, after the Second World War, because Germany had conducted two, started two wars in Europe, the entire region of, of East Prussia, the industrial heartland of Germany, was taken away and given to the Poles, and 12 million Germans were expelled uh, from, from what had become Poland. That's in, under international law, that's justice. Uh, the Israelis made a terrible mistake in 1967 when they did, didn't just annex the whole West Bank, which is the, you know, as you know, the homeland of the Jews anyway. Caroline, uh, you heard David's harsh accusations against the Democratic Party in the United States that, it, that according to him is conducting a war against the commander in chief. Wow, that's, you know, that's, that's a, a fifth column within your, your country. Uh, here in Israel, it seems like we have a, a nascent government, an almost government, and that government seems to be bridging together center-left and center-right. Uh, is this a, a hopeful moment for you? Do you feel like something has come uh, due to the coronavirus, the situation that the Blue and White Party broke into various shards and the more kind of nationalistic element or the more responsible element joined in? Or is that just a facade of political expediency and, and the rift in Israel is as strong as ever? Yeah, I mean, Israel is, uh, is in a similar position to the United States because we have a left wing here, um, which is comprised not only of, uh, of the left, uh, which is very small from a political perspective, they got almost no representation in the Knesset in the last elections or in any of the recent elections, uh, the supposedly uh, center-left parties are really non-ideological parties uh, as they present themselves to the public, but actually what they're doing is, is they're advancing uh, the positions of a very radicalized left um, that is its most powerful feature is its complete control over the legal fraternity in Israel. That's the uh, state prosecution or the Supreme Court. And these are very, very, very radical people. Um, and, you know, when David was saying about the need to call things by their names and talk and, and use language for what it actually means. Um, you see that the left in Israel has completely distorted it. So for instance, um, until we had this sort of coup, a uh, rolling coup by the Supreme Court, which began as far back as 1993, when they started misinterpreting, over-interpreting laws to claim that uh, there was something called judicial review that, the, that we never had, that the Supreme Court could throw out laws that were duly constituted, duly promulgated by the Knesset, uh, our, our parliament, um, and then has just gone on from there to take over really all organs of government and only just a few weeks ago to take over the Knesset functioning as well. Um, you see that we don't have separation of powers here because we have three arms of government, but one has no checks or balances on it and is running roughshod over the other two. Um, so we are in, uh, and, and by the way, the rest of the arms of the law, uh, particularly the media here, um, uh, are, uh, are pushing this agenda forward in the public and hiding what's really happening. And one of the ways that they do hide it is by misusing language, by abusing language. Uh, so they say that the rule of law uh, is what they're trying to preserve in Israeli dem democracy is what they're trying to preserve when what they're doing actually is undermining the very concept of Right. I mean, laws are supposed to mean something. You pass a law. It has it's written in language. Uh, if you're lucky, that language is clear and it doesn't 
require a lot of interpretation. Um, and here what they're doing is saying, no, uh, it doesn't matter what the, what the lawmakers wrote in the laws. It doesn't matter what they agreed to. And it doesn't even matter if what they said is clear as a bell. What matters is what we want. And we don't actually even need the law to tell us anything because as the Supreme Court president, Esther Chayut said just weeks before she, she took over the court in a lecture to the Bar Association in Haifa, she said, we have to untether uh, our, us, the justices, from the mere words of the law and go with our conviction. So this is really, um, you know, David was talking about the left as a competing faith uh, with religion, with God. And he's right. And here we see uh, that this competing faith is this faith in the enlightened uh, aristocracy of Israel, that they know better than the people of Israel what's good for us. And unfortunately, the values that they're, that they're extolling and the values that they're advancing through their seizure of powers that don't belong to them um, are, uh, are very, very radical. I mean, they're anti-Zionist. They don't want Israel to be a nation state, which is why they've tried to undermine uh, every legislative step that the governments and the, and the Knessets have taken over the past 15 years to protect, to protect Israel, whether it's for enforcing our immigration laws against illegal immigrants from, uh, from Muslim countries like Sudan and Eritrea that have turned South Tel Aviv from just regular working class neighborhoods into crime infested, violent areas that longtime residents are afraid to leave their apartment or even be in their apartment. Um, so, you know, it, whether it's that or whether, of course, it's um, over and over and over again denying the property rights of Jews in Judea and Samaria and in, in unified Jerusalem, whether it involves working hand in glove with European financed uh, NGOs. Um, to stymie and and uh, and gum up the works of the government uh, to make it impossible for the government to enforce its laws equally towards Jews and Muslims uh, and Christians in this country, um, and and so trying to develop or create a norm that says that Jews for some reason are defective and that we're not able to uh, uh, equally enforce our laws towards people without prejudice, regardless of their creed. Um, th these are things that are antithetical to everything that this country stands for. Um, and, and I think people woke up very late to this. I think people were unaware of the dangers. I think people weren't clear on what was going on. They were, of course, taken in by the misinformation, the deliberate distortion of the truth that they were being fed, force-fed, really, uh, for over a generation by our media on a whole host of issues, among them this uh, judicial coup that has been going on here since the 1990s. Of course, we saw it in the 1990s as well with the, with the peace process, right? I mean, what David said is spot on. The Palestinians are genocidal. They want to annihilate the Jewish state. They don't support, they will not accept the legitimacy of a Jewish state in Israel. Um, and yet we've been deluding ourselves. And I think a lot of it really doesn't have to do with peace at all. It has to do with power. And if you can convince the public that those who oppose uh, uh, giving Israel's heartland and half of its capital city, uh, to people who want to kill our children, um, then you're discrediting, you're delegitimizing your entire political opposition. You're saying that, and this is what you know we heard almost every day in the 1990s, that everybody who opposed this radical, insane strategy of appeasing the PLO, the architects of modern terrorism, uh, was going to bring peace. And everybody who opposed that was referred to as what? Whether they were Hamas terrorists who were blowing people up in buses, 
or whether it was just law-abiding Israelis who were protesting against this carnage and against this insanity, they were all called enemies of peace. All of them. The moral equivalence between people who were trying to defend their country and people who were trying to annihilate their country was insane. And it's something that goes along. And I think that a lot of this really is just about an unreserved, an unbridled quest for power and oppression of your political opponents. I mean, obviously, we see it in the United States. We, of course, see it in in Europe as well. And, you know, that, I think, speaks to one thing that David said earlier, which was just that it's true that, um, you know, one of the most miraculous things about the establishment of the state of Israel is that we really... It wasn't just because of the Holocaust that we, we were such a small people. Um, you know, we were an ember of our own, of our own peoplehood for 2,000 years. You know, we were pushed out of countries. We were massacred. We were burned alive and forcibly converted uh, out of Judaism, uh, kidnapped, abducted, tortured. Unspeakable things and things that the mind can't get their arms around. You know, you can't, you just can't comprehend the level of of barbarism that has been inflicted on the Jewish people. And so, when we finally formed our country, um, you got to wonder, you know, how can you not? Obviously, I mean, obviously, to me, uh, believe in God in in the face of this that we survived and we clung to our identity all these years. I mean, before we started, Yishai, uh, you were laughing at me or you were poking fun at me because. You know, I'm like, I, my husband is, is, is from a family that comes from Morocco. And so Carolyn, the Ashkenazic Jew from Chicago, is making all this Moroccan food for the holidays and posting it, uh, crazy uh, Twitter uh, videos and laughing at myself. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> his family, in a way, shouldn't have had anything in common with my family, right? We were, we were, we were separated by time and space for thousands of years. And yet, you open up his prayer book, the prayer book that his, his parents and grandparents read in Casablanca. It was the same one, more or less, that mine did in Chicago and Brooklyn and Russia. And, uh, you know, that's amazing. And even inside of our own people, you know, most of these Jews didn't want to come to Israel. A lot of the greatest opponents of Zionism from the dawn of modern Zionism were Jews who said, no, it's good for us in Britain, it's good for us in America, and if these Jews uh, do their bit and build a Jewish state, then we're not going to be important anymore, and, and we don't want that. And they were some of the greatest propagandists against the establishment of the state of Israel. And one last note on that thing, in terms of revising language and all the rest of it. You know, be, the reason that we survived is because of the Torah. It's because of the Bible. It's because of our faith. It's because of our abiding belief in the miraculous nature of, of, uh, of God's covenantal relationship with us. Um, and um, I think the greatest means that our enemies have always used, whether it's the Romans or the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians, and then on and on to medieval and modern times, and the Nazis and the Palestinians and, and the international left, is a war on our memory. It's a war on our language, is, a, is an attempt to, to distort language, whether it's the domestic opposition here at home, the left here in Israel, or 
Israel's enemies in Europe, or biting enemies in Europe, who've been continuing with their war against us still to the present day, even as the European Union collapses. This is what they care about. Um, and, and of course, through the Arab world, um, that they just want to co-opt our history. They want to steal our history from us, attribute it to themselves, and call us strangers in our own land, to our own history, to our own God. You know, just uh, uh, recently, a Danish church uh, just published a new version of the, of the New Testament, which they call Bible 2020. And all mention of Israel has been removed. They've removed the word Israel. Um, and I know that the Anglican Church and the Church of, of England was using a similar hymnal uh, about 10 years ago, uh, where they removed the word Israel from their own liturgy. So, I mean, this is what it's about. We are people of memory. We are people of faith. We are people who have always had our attachment to our land and inside of ourselves and outside of us. The main cosmic and intellectual war against us has been a war against language and a war against our identity and a war against our memory. And so we just keep having to fight it. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to say that the greatest miracle of the ingathering of the exiles was when I saw you, an Ashkenazi girl, make that Moroccan mufleta, which is a Moroccan treat. Uh, it, it really said that East and West have, have come together. The Jewish people are home. And I only wish I could have tasted it due to the coronavirus. I wasn't able to come over and, and, and have and I that mufleta. If I heard that much, I would have. I'll, I'll get it next year with the help of God. All right, folks, thank you so much for joining us for part one. But part two, the second installment of this special broadcast is next, so stay tuned. Zionism, political and secular, says Ben-Gurion, held that Israel must be redeemed by its own efforts and by natural agency, that the Jewish people on its own must create the foundations of a new life. Well, I'm definitely looking to found a new life for my people in the land, although I'm not so sure we can do it on our own, because I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Join Rav Mike Foyer for the best Jewish history podcast, The Jewish Story, on the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com. Katie, uh, Caroline talked about um, the left having like an alternative religion. That religion a lot of times is actually, its temples are these international institutions. The UN, UNESCO, uh, the World Health Organization, etc. Now, that is their kind of worship, the place of their worship. But the classic places of worship, the intellectual connection to the Bible, to nationalism, cultural nationalism. Uh, to the memory for the Jewish people, to the memory of the Holocaust, all that has been erased in Europe. If you go to Europe today, you speak to young Europeans, they don't know the Bible, and they think that you're talking silly witchcraft when you're talking the Bible. Uh, you talk to them about nationalism, all they hear is national socialism. They think you're a Nazi because you want to have a, a strong Israel that defends itself. And you talk about the Holocaust, and they tell you that Israel is actually an oppressive aggressive state that is itself perpetrating the Holocaust uh, against others. So, so Caroline was talking about like this doublespeak, this 1984-ishness that, that's come onto the scene uh, and, and these alternative temples that humanity in places like Europe are, are, are worshiping at. Tell me, what, what's the solution? 
Like, how do we get the Bible, nationalism, historical memory, heritage, liberty back into, into the fray, into the discussion? How do you, like, as a cultural warrior, get your message out? Yes. Well, as a one-woman army, obviously, when I was last in Israel, that involved me stomping about, hunting down NGO reporters who were giving their own mythical version of the truth and actually facing them down in the street, in the place they call Palestine, and helping to expose the lies that they tell in this war against the memory and against the truth of Israel. So for me, that's about getting in people's faces and trying to show other people the duplicity of what is happening in our mainstream media. I think more globally outside of myself going all one woman army on everybody, um, it's so important that what we are doing is challenging um, what we're being told and helping others to do so. And I do that by going and getting other voices. So traveling around France, traveling around the UK, getting people to speak about what's actually happening to them. Jewish families who are being targeted in their own homes, who's who are warned, who are sent letters, six Jewish families in Paris sent letters telling them, get out or we will kill you. And the police, the French police coming and saying, there's nothing we can do, you have to leave. I think part of the process of trying to wake people up is to show them the reality of daily life, of trying to be a Jewish mother, for example, in Paris right now, where every time your child goes to school, you're texting them to check they got there okay. Every time they leave for home, you're making sure they dress so that they can't be identified as Jewish and you're checking that they've got home okay. You know, these are the truths of Europe, of my country, is that Jewish people are openly targeted on the streets, at school and in their homes. And I think one of the most terrifying things for me at this today in the UK is that the organization that's supposed to represent our Jewish families and friends, the board of deputies, are so closely allied with Slim Council, they essentially do their bidding for them. And our own Jewish friends are being removed from the board of deputies for being Islamophobic. And that's what terrifies me. It's something David said earlier. It's a lack of willingness on the part of our brilliant Jewish community to stand up for itself, to speak its own truths, and to defend what you rightly stand for. My fear is that we will no longer have Jews in Europe within the next 20 to 30 years. The good news, Katie, is that we're going to have Jews in the land of Israel. All right, we're, yes. we're, we're going to be strong here. Uh, and, and I also, you know, when we saw what was happening in the UK at Brexit, when, when we saw uh, your new prime minister, and we thought to ourselves, uh, Boris Johnson, we thought to ourselves, great. And I, I don't know if I have rooted for the UK for a long time, you know, ever since yes. some of those, uh, some of those uh, decrees, the white paper and limitations. On, 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 you know, I, I was happy to root for England. I was happy to root yes. for England. Yes, um, and in brief, if I may, you know, that night, uh, the 12th of December, 2019, I still, I still get now, I still got shivers. Uh, my hair on my arms goes up because that night, my Jewish uh, friends in London, many of the mothers of the family fathers had their bags packed by the front door and uh, with the purpose that if Jeremy Corbyn got in, they were going to leave the next day 
to return or to travel to Israel to make a new place called home. And that was the truth of many families that night of that election. And one of the emotionally overwhelming things about Boris winning was that people who had voted Labour all of their lives, it was called the Red War, which is the colour of Labour in our country, the Red War, where their fathers' fathers voted Labour. They were miners, they were the working class, they always voted Labour. My father would roll in his grave if I voted anything else, that kind of place. They came out and because they saw what it meant for our Jewish friends and they saw what it meant for the persecution of people, they came out and they voted Conservative, they voted Boris Johnson because it was the right thing to do. So there's a reason you felt a connection with that election, strangely, for no reason. There was a reason, and it was something out there. This was a this was the darkness of the left who would have would have persecuted our Jewish friends faster, harder. The anti-Semitism would have gone so fast, and it was the darkness versus the light, and the light won. So that that's why you felt it too. I felt it incredibly, and my my Jewish friends and families are are much relieved. I, I guess it's a new British finest hour. It was it was a very yes, fine yes. hour for for England. Uh, That's at, right. At, at the same time, I do want to say to your friends, the, the Jewish people who had their bags packed, Israel is a, indeed a refuge. But that's not the only reason to come here. If you want to come here just no. to, just to make a life and, and raise your children in Judea, there's an opportunity there. I'm not. Yes. I'm not saying you have to run away from England, but if you want to choose a, a great destiny, there's definitely an opportunity here to be Katie, pioneers. That's right. To be pioneers. To be part of a great and incredible project. Uh, which which Israel is, but you know what, uh, Katie? I really like what you said. It gave me a lot of hope because because there's a lot of darkness out there, and you're like, you know, you you pointed out that whole Corbin victory, which I kind of forgot, and it made me feel like, yes, there are there are victories, there are moral victories out there, and they're incredible. And I'm going to turn to David Horowitz, and I'm going to riff off of that. David, you know, uh, maybe you've had a, felt a lot of victories in your long and illustrious career. Uh, I had a small victory. And that is that when UNESCO, the UN body that's in charge of uh, recognizing heritage sites, decided that the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs in Hebron was actually a Palestinian heritage site, in Hebron, I started, uh, in, in our offices, I started a campaign. At first, everybody told me I'm wasting my time. And that campaign started to snowball. And our foreign ministry got into it, Sipi Khatabeliri, our, de our deputy foreign minister at the time. And then the World Jewish Congress, and so on and so forth. And at the end, it led to the Trump administration leaving UNESCO with the stated reason that UNESCO was trying to declare Hebron and the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs a Palestinian World Heritage Site. Those lies were challenged by the Trump administration. And that was one of the greatest victories that I ever saw that was, that was in my life, a personal victory, a battle victory uh, uh, against the enemy that wanted to erase history. Like, tell me about victory. Uh, are we, you told me before that you're disappointed in some of the things the Israeli government has done. Tell me about the, the next victory that, that we can have for Israel, for the world, for liberty, for America. We can win the war, but not if we behave like mice. And that's the lesson of Trump. Trump, and unfortunately, Trump is still an incredible minority and he's got a big following, which is the source of most of my optimism, that he's awakened. Uh, patriotic Americans. Uh, but I do, it's partly a characterological issue. I mean, um, you know, both Jews and uh, uh, 
uh, actual and decent Americans want to appear to be decent and tolerant and give people the benefit of the doubt. We're faced with what the left likes to call an existential threat um, in the left and in the Democratic Party. Uh, what Carolyn said is very important. The, the assault on memory and particularly on origins is the sign of a genocide. It's to wipe out the people. You do it first um, by wiping out the images and the memories, and then you makes it easy to wipe them out. And in America, we have this genocidal campaign totally embraced by the Democratic Party, sponsored by the New York Times and the Pulitzer Foundation and thousands of classrooms. It's called the 1619 Project. And literally, I'm not exaggerating anything. Their goal is to replace the founding of America in 1776, which is the beacon of freedom, not only for America, but for the world, um, with uh, the 1619, because there were 20 African slaves brought to the Virginia colony. That, and it's, it's two lives. Uh, the founding of America was 1776. Those were English colonies. They were not Americans. Uh, and the second lie is that uh, slavery was actually outlawed in Virginia till the end of the 17th century. Those were indentured servants. So they would be freed in seven years. Uh, and the vast majority of labor in Virginia was indentured servitude of white people were the main indentured servants. But by, you take away a nation's pride, its self-esteem, what we, how did the United States bail out the world through two world wars from tyranny? It was because of 1776. How did they lead the world? How did Americans lead the world in abolishing slavery? It was because of 1776. Uh, if you take away the memory of the Jews uh, and their persecutions and you make their persecutors victims, you're just enabling a genocide. The left, is, they're Nazis. You know, it's a, you can't hardly, the left is no shame about using that word, but why don't we use it at all? The, 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 I mean, the, the, the home of anti-Semitism, the fountainhead of anti-Semitism is now the political left. The whole left in America hates Israel. Uh, but I don't see our side using the language of war. You see it? I mean, Trump, Trump is just great. I mean, what he's done, you had three presidents before him. It was you know, Obama, Clinton, and Bush all promised to move the American embassy to Jerusalem, which has been the capital of Judaism for thousands of years. Not one of them had the courage to do it because they didn't want to be called whatever the millions of you know, horrible terms the left has. You know, they don't want to be called racist. They don't want to be called uh, Islamophobes, whatever the hell it was. Um, the, the, you know, the Temple Mount, that, that Al-Aqsa Mosque, that's a product of Islamic imperialism. Islam is, is a religion that was spread by the sword. Uh, we have to start talking reality, our side, and then we have a chance to win. And we should, you have a window here with Trump, uh, because I, I can't guarantee when he's gone, there'll be another fighter.
powerful words indeed. Uh, and I guess you're really advocating using the language of war, uh, understanding war. that it's a war. It's recognizing this is a war. You know, it's like. Let me ask. Let me ask you this: Why is it that the left? likes and is ready to articulate and use the language of war and the left and the right a lot of times recoils isn't the right more you know deplorable isn't it isn't it more the the people aren't we more like ready to fight more civilized and it's too civilized for uh, for this kind of this kind of warfare the left is exactly like the jihadists well, you know why why are they willing to slaughter innocent people it's to make the world a holy place for Allah. Uh, and what's the left? Why, why is the left willing to countenance these kind of crimes? Why do they turn, uh, avert their eyes from the realities of Palestinian terrorism and Palestinian Nazism? Uh, you know, because it gets in the way of their uh, fantasy of uh, establishing a world with social justice. They're total hypocrites. You got a million Muslim Uyghur Muslims in China in concentration camps. The left doesn't utter a peep about that. Their hypocrisy is is on display every day in every way. Uh, you know, it's like uh, I, I don't know. Believe a pathological liar like uh, Christine uh, Blasey Ford, the accuser of uh, of Kavanaugh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, who has proven in the hearings to be a bold-faced liar. Believe her, but don't believe the accuser of Biden. I mean, I think it was actually, it was Biden who, you know, in his senile, I mean, it's the only endearing quality about him that he's senile. Um, He said, you know, the Republicans have standards, but we have double standards. Okay, um, it's been an awesome conversation so far. And I want to ask, uh, I want to take this opportunity to get you guys to, to speak amongst yourselves. Really three superstars of, uh, of cultural icons, people who are, who are creating, just this conversation has awoken in me so many uh, thoughts and, and memories and strength and actually a lot of, a lot of courage and this, this feeling of wanting willingness to fight for what's true and what's just. I want to turn it to you guys, Katie. Come on, throw out something. What, what would you? What would you? What would you? What would you challenge David with when it comes to uh, uh, like Zionism in Israel or, or or liberty and nationalism? Oh well, my challenge would be, and I, and I place this to everybody as a as the non-Jewish representative here, <laughs> representing all non-Jews. No, is is why why does and I and I obviously mean this respectfully. But why does Israel do such a poor job of stating its truth on this as we look towards Independence Day when moral clarity is one of the key values that you have? Why are more Jews not willing to stand up and speak the truth plainly and uh, without um, softening it for the world to see? And I'm thinking of two things in particular, one of them of course, being calling terrorism for what it is. And the second thing is the eternal conflict between Israel and whatever Palestine is. Why are so few Jews willing to be bold in calling this out? Well, I think that there are two things that you have to bear in mind. I mean, one of them is that, uh, you know, uh, uh, David was saying that the, uh, 
that the right wing is is too afraid or, or you know, that the, the left wing is willing to to castigate anybody and to use uh, bellicose language against the right at, at all. At, at every turn, and the right wing is much more genteel, much more polite. And I think that you have to recognize that the reason for that is because the left can get away with it. Mm-hmm. Left can slander anybody that it wants. It can say anything it wants to about anybody, and it doesn't matter if it's true or false. And there's no price to pay. There's no price to pay for slander. There's no price to pay for failure. There's no price to pay for anything. I mean, one of the things that was always extraordinary to me was how ghoulish all of these peace processors were in the State Department and in various, you know, in Israel and in the United States, um, that they just, they never went away. They failed over and over and over again, and they kept getting promoted. And same thing, by the way, with the media here in Israel and in the United States, you know, you're a lousy cub reporter but you're a radical leftist, you get promoted. You, you get promoted to a senior reported, reporter and you're terrible and you're biased and you lie and you know just fake news comes out of your pen or your mouth and every broadcast and every article that you write and you get promoted for it. There's no price to pay for lying. There's no price to pay for slander. There's no price to pay for misleading. Um, and, and to the contrary, it's rewarded. So, of course, you're going to do more of it. And on the other hand, you know, so many uh, people on the right, whether in Israel or in the United States or in Europe or in Britain or, wh- or wherever, you know, they, they uh, get prosecuted for, for telling the truth or, or they get vilified and thrown out of the public square. So, I mean, that's the reason for stating the truth. You can get in a lot of trouble. I mean, just look at how many people have been deplatformed from social media. You know, I mean, all I do on my on my uh, on my website, I'm not much of a blogger, um, is uh, is post my articles from the paper and uh, Google uh, uh, Google AdSense um, deplatformed me. They won't you know, they won't allow me not not that I was ma- I was making, you know, maybe five dollars a month. But that's not the point. The point is that they didn't want to be associated with me. Why? You know, and and so it but it's and it's everybody. And, and so I think that that's, that's the reason. And as for Jews themselves, you know, I think one of the big problems is the social pressure and, and the, and the uh, price that you have to pay. And the other reason is because a lot of Jews just don't know. I mean, if, if you're talking about Jews in the United States, uh, they don't, if they're not raised in a religious or, or an openly, very strongly Zionist uh, home, where are they going to learn it? You know, you have you have Jewish day schools in places like Charlottesville that have been taken over by radical leftists and uh, people who are marching against Israel are also teaching Hebrew to your children. Um, you, know, you have some of that. And then if they manage to get through grade school and high school in one piece, they go to college. And a nice Jewish girl or a nice Jewish boy who wants to learn about their history is going to go into Middle East studies. Uh, and take a class where they're going to be indoctrinated to and lectured to and badgered and hectored by their professor and by everybody in their university. And if they stand up for Israel, they're going to be banished from the public square. They're going to be criminalized and, and harassed by everybody. So why would they bother? And so I think you know, that's one of the problems in the left. And by the way, it's also very much a problem here in Israel where, again, you know, the major television stations, the radio, 
uh, many of the major papers are very, very biased towards the radical left, in Israel, which is why I put people uh, like the justices in the Supreme Court can get away with seizing power illegally in the name of the rule of law and democracy. So, you know, the only thing that you can do, and I, and, you know, and I, and I say this to students here in Israel and in the United States when I speak to them, um, and, and I say really to any, any audience that I've spoken to, Jewish, uh, I mean, Jewish audiences, predominantly the, Jew, the audiences that I speak with, um, you, know, you have to know your facts. I mean, like Yishai said at the beginning of, of, of our discussion this evening that um, we're marking the centennial of the San, San Remo uh, conference. And really more important than what happened there legally is what happened there diplomatically. Because diplomatically you had the world powers assemble in, in Italy and recognize that the Jewish narrative isn't a narrative. It's just a simple, plain truth that the land of Israel belongs to the Jews, period. It's never belonged to anybody else. And there was no, it wasn't controversial. I mean, there was no question. It wasn't that they were great friends of the Jews. It was just that that was true. They all knew because they read the Bible. But now if you don't teach your kids the Bible, you don't teach your kids the history of, of the Middle East in a real way, but you just teach them a lie and you can't stand up for things that you don't even know, then you're faced with a fatal mix. So, you know, I think it's important. I just participated in an online conference yesterday about marking the centennial of the San Remo conference. And I said there as to students and I, and I urged them, you have to know this stuff. The more you know, the easier it is to defend yourself. The less you know, the less you can defend yourself. It's very simple. So I think, you know, you're not a one-woman army, and I'm not a one-woman army, and David isn't a one-man army. We're all fighters for the truth, the truth of our countries, the truth of our people, and the truth of history. And, you know, and, and so we can get as frustrated as we like, but... Uh, it's an important battle, and 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 I thank God that I'm 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 privileged to be in it, and to be in it with you, and uh, and you know with God's help we'll win, and we won't win once and for all. I mean, our t our history teaches us that we'll win a battle, and then we'll be in a war again, and then we'll have to do it again and again and again and again and again. But since it's so important, and since everything is always on the line, we just have to keep fighting. And, and teach people so that they can keep fighting. I think it's so, I love the way you speak about this idea of keeping fighting. And it's something I always feel for our side, whatever that is and whoever you are, is that our side, we always need to remember, we will always be fighting uphill. So uh, to your point about the left, all you have to do is say this, do this, and you'll be promoted probably. We know we will always be fighting uphill. There will never be a time when this fight is easy or gets easier. And any time that we think it do, we're, we're kidding ourselves. And, and I think that's it. I think Yishai does a great job of it as well, standing boldly, knowing this fight will always be uphill, but we will prevail. You know, I do believe that at some point we will be able to feel that we are winning. I felt that way a few months back, actually, before Corona interrupted everything. I felt like we were, we were winning. And maybe those two things are, are reconciled. I think one of my the thing that's broken my heart a little bit here in lockdown in the UK is the willingness of neighbours to report on neighbours when requested by Corona police. And, and that, that cast to me a very dark time in our past. And now 
watching people willingly report on others to gain themselves favour is something I'm not enjoying here in terms of just bringing this round to today. Yeah. To Katie's question, do, did you, is there something in the Jewish psychology that sometimes like, you know, we're great super soldiers, we got amazing jets, we're, we're great flyers, and, and when the chips are down, the IDF and the Mossad, et cetera, know how to kick ass. But when it comes to uh, the narrative, the narrative war, saying our thing, and there's something that sometimes Katie's saying, well, sometimes you're a little bit like mice, like you said. Uh, is there something in the Jewish psychology? Carolyn said it's, it's ignorance and it's a little bit of fear, uh, not being promoted and not getting, getting up there. By the way, I heard that Peter Beinart was a very unsuccessful writer until he started turning anti-Israel, he suddenly became mega successful. He just got, well, he, he's got lifted he, up. He, Go ahead, David. You know, my nice hero was Joe Slovo, the Communist Party chief in uh, South Africa, which is where he, he grew up. He, he's a bad, bad player, bad actor. And yes, his book got a huge advance for a book that completely flopped. Well, we cannot win this battle until we start calling them by their right names. They're racists. They're Nazis. They support terrorists. They're hypocrites. And they're traitors to their country. Now, one thing that uh, Marxism, Marx showed, I mean, he started this international civil war. And they, they called their organizations the international. Remember he said, workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. And that proved to be totally wrong. When the First World War came along, the Socialist International held the conference and they vowed that they would not fight for country and the working class fought for country. And we can see in America today, the working class is gonna fight for America. And I'm sure the majority of Israelis are still patriotic. We have to draw on that, but you can't draw on that unless you're willing to say, look, this is treason. Uh, or, you know, that your Supreme Court is subverting your democracy, which is what it, you know, is what it is. I actually, um, I, I want to, my magazine, we have a motto, uh, which says, inside every liberal is a totalitarian screaming to get out. <laughs> Why is that? It's because they think they can change the whole world. They can create this heaven on earth. They want to control you and everything about you. That's why we're having this backlash in America over opening the society because they're banning, well, what did, they, what did, the, what did the Democrats do? Uh, they closed the churches and the synagogues on Easter and Passover and opened the jails. That's who they are. They support criminals, they support, anyway, this is the way the battle has to be fought. I have one um, parable. At a, uh, it's a Jewish parable. Uh, when I was in high school, I did a paper on the Warsaw Ghetto. And the ghetto had about 500,000 Jews there. And the Jewish council, the reasonable Jews, Jews, yeah, we're going to be reasonable, we're going to cooperate with the Germans and show them that we're decent people. They took the census of the ghetto. They identified every one of those 500,000 Jews which made it easy for the Nazis to ship them off to camps. And when, they, when people escaped from the camps, from Auschwitz and came and told them, they didn't believe them. When there were only 1,500 Jews left 
in the, in the ghetto out of 500,000. They resisted. It was the first armed resistance. And they held off the Germans longer than the French, longer than the French. If the Jews had fought in, uh, during the Nazi period, there would be millions of people who perished in the Holocaust alive today. Every Jew has to internalize that story and start fighting. You know, we, this is just an early warning, all these things, the Iran deal, uh, you know, the embrace of the Democratic Party of Jew haters like Bernie Sanders. This is the early warning time. If you don't act now, uh, what's going to happen is what happened with the virus. It's going to spread. You know, we may not have a Trump. If the Democrats, I don't think they can win this election, although they're, you know, openly trying to steal it now with their uh, mail-in ballots scam, their voter fraud. Uh, if the Democrats were in power, Israel would be in a world of hurt, a world of hurt. I mean, Obama was just, you know, there was still a better environment when Obama was elected. This Obama is a communist traitor. He was raised the same way I was, only he never left the communist movement. He was trained by communists. He was part of the communist new left that wanted to destroy America and Israel. Um, but, but he was hemmed in because the national consciousness hadn't got to the point where it is now, where the whole left is openly supporting terrorists. On every campus, there's Students for Justice in Palestine, which is a Hamas operation, supported by every major university in the United States. And I, I, I mean, I've had this problem of, uh, you know, with the Israeli embassies, invited them to our events, and they would only come if I would take away those uh, ads where I showed the 10 genocidal lies that were motivating uh, Students for Justice in Palestine and Hamas. This has got to stop. People have got to fight. I mean, that, that's the message. All right, Katie. So I guess your, your question evinced some very strong emotions uh, because, because we do want to fight and Israel wants to fight and, and good people want to fight for, for liberty and for their culture and not have it taken over just like you want to fight for an England that's not taken over by the jihad uh, and, or, or Jeremy Corbyn, which is really two sides of the same coin. So I, I'm going to give you the final word on this, which is answer your own questions. You know, uh, will the Jews fight for, for Israel? Will the world, the good people outside of London, uh, win England over? Will the good folks, uh, for example, who, who voted for, for President Trump, but who love America, who love patriotic America, will they be the victors? Uh, will we be celebrating Israel in another uh, 100 years for Israel in another 28 years? Yes, so, so two things. One, um, I want to put David in my pocket and then put him from time to time just so he can do that kind of thing to people because A, he makes me look moderate and reasonable <laughs> and B, we need that, you know, I'm very alone here in the UK. I need that truth talker and I need to be able to say, okay, ignore me if you hate me, listen to David. So that's number one. Number two, um, on a gloomy note, the UK will not endure. Uh, we will fall to Islam within the next 30 years. Uh, that will happen. And uh, one of the things I learned during my following of, of Jewish families as they look to return or to, to be pioneers in Israel is that they have a place to call home. And for people like me, other families, we are looking 
to ask, where is our Israel? Where will we go? And increasingly, so I, I am so confident Israel will remain, will always be there because when it comes to it, you are tough. The IDF is the toughest there is. You have this in your core that that is your home and you are not going to let anyone take it. And the other place I look to, of course, is to America because there's a very different reaction going on right now. This virus is showing so clearly here in the UK, we are subjects. We are down on bended knee. This country is compliant. It's doing what it's told. It's not questioning anything. It's just accepting it's just a virus and we must do what we're told. In America, it's all about standing up and questioning, looking for freedom, reopen, rebirth, reborn the economy. It's, it's completely different. And so it's to Israel and to America and that enduring partnership uh, that I think we look to for strength. I think you guys have got it. We will go, but you guys absolutely will remain. And I believe in a more biblical sense, one day when we've retreated to Eastern Europe and other places, we will come back to Israel and to America, just as they used to do with the vines. You guys came to, Americans came to us to get the vines to grow their grapes. And eventually we will come back to America and to Israel to rebirth our country one day when we crusade again. Um, but certainly for me, uh, America's relationship with Israel is something that has given me so much positivity and hope and from a British perspective, we say thank you to Israel. Thank you to 64 million Americans. And thank you for standing strong for our Judeo-Christian culture when, sadly, in my country, it will be left to fall. Katie, we're not going to get to keep uh, uh, any of you physically in our pocket. But with this modern technology and this video, we're going to have this video to, to watch over and over again. I know that I'm going to get home and watch this video again just to be re-inspired, reinvigorated to, to fight, to fight for truth, to, as David said, kind of call it out uh, uh, more clearly and stop sissyfooting around and just saying what the truth uh, more robustly, uh, calling out bad things as I see them and as you see them. Uh, I'm going to take, Katie, from you uh, a sense of that question, like, hey, Jews, uh, when are you going to stand up and, and tell your truth and, and kind of not... not Say what your real, who your land is, who your enemies are, and what your vision is for the future. Uh, and from, from Caroline, uh, I'm going to take also this idea uh, that education is the key because there are so many good people who are simply ignorant. With all that, uh, I want to wish you all a happy uh, Israel Independence Day, uh, 72 years and 100 years since the world actually recognized Jewish rights uh, in the land of Israel. It's an amazing, amazing year. Yes, we're under the uh, limitations of COVID, but our hearts are soaring. And I want to thank you so much for all the amazing work you do. Maybe I'll take uh, the, the uh, title of Caroline's book, which is Shackled Warrior, and say, you guys are unshackled warriors. I want to thank you for your amazing work and thank you for joining me here today in Israel. Thank, thank you. Thanks, Amir. Thanks, Amir. Thank you. I believe the Brits will rise again. Now, hold on one second, friends. Hey. <laughs> yeah, I want to end on that. That's sad. I understand Britain is in great trouble. But let, let me, here's my pep talk. In April 1941, um, Gallup took a poll. Now, the Japanese had overrun all of Southeast Asia. The Germans had overrun all of Europe, except Britain. 
And Gallup took a poll among Americans. Should the United States get involved in the, in the war? 81% said no. And then came Pearl Harbor. I've, I've watched all these films of the Battle of Britain on the Smithsonian uh, Channel and so forth. I think the Brits have it in them to fight back. And unfortunately, it's going to take some major atrocity to turn them around. But you can count on that happening. <laughs> yeah. That's a good pet talk. I like it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to all the guests. There's a lot more great stuff found at Forum Cafe Shapira. And I want to wish everybody a happy 72nd Independence Day of the great state of Israel. All right, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to the Ishai Fleischer Show here on the Land of Israel Network. I really do want to thank Ben Bresky. Um, I want to thank Tabitha and Moshe Herman for getting our show out to the world. It takes a team, and you're also part of that team when you help us out. First thing, when you, when you listen, when you're part of it, when you give us a thumbs out, thumbs up, when you, when you rate us highly, it makes a difference uh, when you rate the show highly. Uh, donations are always appreciated. If you wanted to buy me a cup of coffee, it's it's uh, it's easy enough. Uh, just go to ishaifleischer.com, and we're going to be opening a lot more channels uh, of donation possibilities, various apps, and all that. So I'm looking forward to uh, to that happening soon. But in the meantime, PayPal is is operational. And remember, all of our uh, supporters and uh, and teammates. If it's JewishPress.com, that puts out a, a great. Uh, email uh, every week they put out our show as well every week so thank you very much to jewishpress.com if it's Hebron Jewish Community uh, which is holding the fort holding down the fort literally holding down the fort uh, of the tombs of the mothers and fathers come visit us virtually or physically when that's enabled at hebronfund.org the good folks at the true blue Jew folks that uh, make the biblical blue string come back to life uh, which is uh, such an awesome privilege to be wearing it right now as I speak, uh, which is Tchelet, T-E-K-H-E-L-E-T, dot com, and some of our other sponsors that you could find on my email uh, that I send out weekly at yishaifleischer.com. Uh, more great stuff. Oh, yeah, and if you want more content, I've been firing content all week, both on, on Twitter and Facebook, so you can join me there and connect to the story of Israel, connect to Hashem's story, God's story. He is broadcasting... An awesome broadcast, the greatest broadcast that's ever been, the greatest show that's ever been shown uh, is, is, is being played out right now here in the land of Israel with a global light as well. And you are connected to that light wherever you are. So stay tuned, stay connected. Lots of love. Write me an email, yeshai at thelandofisrael.com. And uh, hugs and kisses and blessings from the land of blessings. Shalom. This week, Jeremy Gimpel with a special important message on the final return of Israel. Every individual has divine providence in their life because Abraham was just one man. He was one family. And the Jewish people are an extension of just this one promise given to one man. And as his destiny unfolds through us, the world sees that everyone has a destiny. For the full show, click on Jeremy Gimpel on the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com.